You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, everybody, welcome to week two of Why We Worship the Way We Do, Unpacking the Morning Prayer Liturgy. If you are listening to audio of this recording right now, I would encourage you actually to go to our website and grab um, and watch a video alongside this audio because we've basically synced up my slideshow that I'm going to be leading. And this particular presentation, these, these weeks of prayer book stuff are full of diagrams that I think are really helpful in adding a visual layer to what you're hearing. So if you go to adventbirmingham.org slash prayerbookclass2021, adventbirmingham.org slash prayerbookclass2021, you can listen to this same audio, but get it synced up with uh, the kind of video slide presentation that I'm doing that should be very helpful. Okay. Well, welcome to the people that are, are here. We're in week two, and I want to do a little bit of review and uh, then go, go through it. But this is going to be helpful today because we just worshiped with the morning prayer liturgy. And what I want to do is unpack and unearth a little bit of it and kind of figure out uh, some of the broad structure of it as well as get into some of the details. And so the first thing we want to review here is the two goals of why we uh, are doing this. Number one is to kind of better help to help us connect head and heart. And one of the things we noticed is that one of my heroes, who is Thomas Cranmer, who architected the Book of Common Prayer back in the 16th century, an English reformer, he wrote in his preface to that book uh, that the purpose of this thing that he was constructing for the worship of the English people was that the people should continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God and be the more inflamed with the love of his true religion. And I said last week, and I'll say it again, it's not often that we immediately associate liturgical worship with fiery passion and love, uh, which Doug preached about today. But that's actually the idea that the reformers had in mind for what we are to be about when we're engaging the liturgy. And the other goal of uh, this class is to tune our ears to hear the gospel in worship, which means that when we're looking at morning prayer or Holy Communion, we're not interested in, in observing everything. That would take a lot more time. But I am interested particularly with the people of God here at the Advent in equipping you with the set of hearing aids to hear the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the worship service a little bit better to kind of cut through the fog of all the details of the liturgy. Last week, we talked about the theology of worship surrounding uh, the prayer book and the theology of the prayer book in general. And to get at that theology, it's really this question. The central question being asked during the Reformation was how are people changed? And that was the debate between Rome and the Protestants was the answer to that question. And those who were of the Reformation who were reading Paul and said, this is what I'm going to put my flag on, said people are changed by a work of God in the heart, which is Important because that means it's from the inside out, not the outside in. It's not externals that sort of press my heart into submission, but it starts from a change inside my heart. And how does God do that work, that heart work? He does it particularly through one means, through his word, 
particularly through the central word that that word preaches, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was reminded of this today because today we have the transfiguration passages. And one of the things that Jesus is displaying there when he's standing there lit up next to Moses and Elijah, which Jesus said several times, like in Luke 24 and other places, was that the law, Moses, and the prophets, i.e. the whole Old Testament, Jesus would say this very clearly, this is all about me. So that means if we're not reading our Old Testament as well as our New and not letting it drive toward Jesus, we're not submitting to the way Jesus taught us to read it. Jesus taught us to read Holy Scripture, to find him there, and particularly what about him do we find? We find that he was a, a Savior who came and died and rose and ascended on high for us. So God does this work of changing people through his word, particularly in the gospel. So, to summarize the theology of the prayer book, the driving force behind the Reformation, and therefore the driving force behind a Reformation understanding of worship can be summarized in this statement. We said it's summarized in this idea of the Word of God births faith. If we are to have faith in God that produces love for God and love for our neighbor, it's that Word that births faith. The Word of God does the work, particularly the Gospel. So that means if you and I are to be changed, we need a liturgy that's constantly giving us Jesus over and over and over again. That's the idea there. And this is a diagram that we use to go through it. We said God's Word comes down to us first on the left, and then responding, coming out of us, which is God's gift to, according to Ephesians 2, even our faith isn't a work. It's a gift of God. Our faith is, is God's gift to us. Responds back to him. And then we could point an arrow that's kind of horizontal as well to say love or good works. Because our good works aren't for God. They're for others, right? And that's what happens when God's word changes us. It creates the faith that produces good works. That's kind of the equation there. That was even in our passage today that Doug preached on when he said, the God who spoke light out of darkness. So he's saying, Paul's reading Genesis and getting this is how God works. God works by speaking. And when God speaks, he creates. And then Paul drew a line from that idea of Genesis all the way to the new creation, which is when God speaks to you, he raises you and creates and recreates you. That's the idea. It births faith. So the heart of the prayer book is unleashing the word of God to convert your heart through the power of the gospel. So here we are today, and we're going to unpack a little bit of morning prayer. And what I want to say is when you open up your bulletin and you see all these headings, I will admit it's a bit overwhelming, right? You see all those headings and titles, and before too long, you kind of lose the forest for the trees. And what I want to be able to do today is make sense of these trees by zooming out to the forest so that hopefully as you're in the trees from week to week, it makes a little more sense. Now, morning prayer can be divided into basically two parts. The first part we could call the word read. This is the section of the service dedicated to the kind of climax of the reading of the Word of God. And it's everything from the beginning of the service, the voluntary of the prelude, to the hymns, all the way through to the, the readings there, the psalm and the canticle and the gospel, all the way through the prayers that respond to that red word. All right? The second half, and usually I will say... Um, a lot of times you can intuit where these halves are broken up based on where we place our welcome. 
in the service because that's a, a natural breaking point between these two movements of the word of God. It's both true in, morning, in Holy Communion and true in, in morning prayer here. Uh, but the second part, part two, we might call the word preached. So the thing I want you to notice is that God's word from beginning to end is coming at you. It's just coming out in various forms, whether it's the word read and sung and prayed or preached and prayed, as in this section. So the word of God is doing the work and it's constantly doing this. We could look at this a different way, though, and especially since it's Valentine's Day, we'll put a little heart up there. And what I want to say is that this chart here, this diagram, this blue line going through this is a way of visualizing the movement of morning prayer. And in general, what we're saying is that we are in the world and we're being drawn into the heart of God and who he is. And then from out of being drawn into his bosom and his heart, we are sent back out into the world to witness to what we have heard. This is what morning prayer is and does, is it draws us to God's heart, to intimate fellowship with him. And then God drives us back into the world to praise. So this first half is really uh, God wooing us to himself. You know, we come into worship, we're a little bit discombobbled, and God begins to take us through the actions of his word to get our hearts ready to hear from him and who he is intimately. So there's a, a kind of a tractor beam of love and grace that God is using to draw us to himself in morning prayer. And if you're paying attention to the way the language of the liturgy works in that succession, you're going to get that. The second half is hearing and at the heart of God, and again, being sent back into the world for love, good works, and mission, and all those kinds of things. So first, I want to focus on this first half. And as we're looking at this blue line here, what I want to say is that this blue line represents in both its, uh, the way it's moving, the squiggle and the upward and the downward motion, it's representing a kind of theological and emotional movement. I think they're tied together. You know, something about liturgical worship is that we often feel like we need to check our emotions at the door because of how formalistic and how uh, sort of intellectual it is to kind of go through a book and read words and things like that. I don't think that those things are ever supposed to be divisible. And according to Cranmer, if this thing we're doing is supposed to inflame our hearts more with love of God's true religion, then really emotions and theology go hand in hand. And what I want to say is that the way this arc moves with the squiggle and then the line up and then the line down is very much to describe not only a theological progression, but an emotional one as well. So let's zoom in here to the first half, the word read. You've got the line, you've got the squiggle and the upward movement to the heart of God. Yet again, happy Valentine's Day. Now, if we're to overlay the elements that kind of go along this line, just so you can see it, here's what we have. You know, we, we have a sort of emotional starting place where we're all kind of getting calibrated and ready. And usually when we sing that first song, we're all kind of getting tuned up so that we're ready to take this journey together. I don't know about you, but it takes me about verse five of any hymn that we're singing to kind of feel like, okay, I'm, I'm a little bit more established than I can be in it. Because the reality is what I could draw at the beginning of that dot there that begins the journey is a bunch of lines that are spread out all over the place emotionally. And one of the jobs I think of a good opening hymn is to calibrate us all to be ready to take this journey together in the story of the gospel. 
And the thing that calibrates us is awe of who God is and what he's done, which is why oftentimes opening hymns are all about loftiness and God's glory and holiness and his attributes like we sang this morning, only a holy God. We're sort of letting God arrest us with just how beautiful and powerful and holy and magnificent he is so that we can calm down from the fight we just had with our spouse or the weird night we had or the pizza we ate that's kind of sitting funny in my stomach on Sunday morning or something like that, right? So we're here, we sing the hymn, and then uh, what I want to say is I look at this sort of first part, this first section here. The opening sentence is the first word out of the gate in a worship service, and it's important that it be God's word and not our word. Why? Because God initiates action. If we're to respond to God, it has to start with his word first. It's one of the reasons why, apart from maybe just a general, hello, welcome today, we don't spend a long time welcoming people because it's really the goal of the word of the Lord to speak and to do its sort of resurrection work right at the beginning and to say something, to sort of arrest us with God speaking. And then we respond after we go through that And this is the downward motion where we come into the time of confessing our sin. Because guess what? When you are confronted with the glory and the holiness of God, there is nothing to do but to confess your sin. Have you ever read Isaiah 6, where Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And he starts to describe this. He was seated on a throne. Train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And then I heard the angels singing this heavenly song. The Sanctus that we sing at Holy Communion, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What does Isaiah do right after that? Right after he hears that heavenly song of the holiness of God and is arrested by that, what is the natural human response to that? Woe to me! I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. There's almost no way to enter into the presence of God in a worship service but that confession of sin, and then God meets us there. I want to look at that, the liturgy, a little bit more, and I want to look right after the opening sentences before in our liturgy, the confession, right there, right in between them, between the opening and confession, um, a minister, among many ministers, stands up and says the following words. I want to dissect these words a little bit. First, dearly beloved. That's a really important thing. It's not just sentimental. We tend to only hear it nowadays in wedding liturgies. But it was very purposeful. It was was actually in addition to the Reformation liturgies that Cranmer picked up on from Europe, from uh, Germany in particular, when the liturgies would begin a worship service by addressing the people of God as beloved brothers and sisters, beloved in God. Why? Because it's important to know right before we're about to go through this hard thing of having our hearts opened up to the glory of God, that God loves us, that he's for us. So it's kind of like a father coming to discipline his child. You need that context of love for that child to know what's about to happen is safe and won't destroy me because the wrath is about to come down. And I need to know that this wrath is bookended and maybe supplanted and undergirded by love. And so you should hear that as you come in. God wants you to know very clearly, hey, I love you. That's who you are to me in this moment. And as we go through this, As you hear hard things, as you hear comforting things, just know that I love you. I'm gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls, right? Next thing I want you to notice is that right at the beginning, we have an affirmation that this isn't just playing around, and that this isn't just playing church with a nice script. 
This is coming into the presence of Almighty God. You know, Cranmer was a charismatic. He believed that God was actually present in the midst of a worship service. And then you have, I think, what are outlined four purposes for a worship service. So it's funny, we kind of get a lesson every morning prayer of what worship is all about in these things. We have come together in the presence of God for four reasons. Number one, to render thanks for the great benefits that we've received at his hand. Just to simply say thank you, because guess what? This whole week has been a, a barrage. I don't care how much suffering you've been through. It's been a barrage of God's gifts and faithfulness to you. So you come simply. We come simply to say thank you. Number one is to set forth his most worthy praise. I don't care if you're in season or out of season or feel like it or not. God's worthy. So we come to worship him and to say, I'm going to sort of set aside my disposition and simply go, because you're worthy, I'm here to offer it, you know, uh, to hear his holy word for sure. And in fact, that's, that's something that's really important. Upwards of two thirds of the Book of Common Prayer is either direct quotation of or allusion to scripture. So we're not only talking about reading the scripture and preaching, we're also talking about the prayers. We're going to see that in a second. So we're here to hear his holy word. And in kind of response to all that, to ask for ourselves and on behalf of others those things that are necessary for our life and our salvation. So it's to kind of pray for everything. We're here to pray about all the things that are burdened our hearts. So I don't believe in the axiom of leaving your burdens at the door. I don't think that's what God intends. In fact, I think God says, bring it on in. Lay it at my feet and watch what I do. Pray and ask for those things that are necessary for all those burdens. That's what you're here to do today. Those things that are necessary for our life and our salvation. Okay. After that announcement, it's, it's called the exhortation to confession. We confess our sins. I want to point out maybe just a few things about this confession. The first is that this is loaded with scripture. There are upwards of 11 passages of scripture that this confession alludes to. One of my favorites is this one. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us. It's from Luke 18, 13. It sounds like a generic phrase, but it's actually taken right from there. And it's one of the things I like about Cranmer and what he did in the liturgy. In a few spots, he's placing us into the shoes of a biblical character. So in a way, when we say that, we're meant to conjure up the image of that moment of the biblical character. And in Luke 18, you have Jesus contrasting and comparing the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee praying his long-winded prayer and great words. And what does the publican pray? What does the the other guy pray? He doesn't pray a long-winded prayer. He simply prays, have mercy upon me, O Lord. He beat his breast, and that's all he said. And Jesus said, that's the prayer. (laughs) In a strange way, that's kind of the prayer of a righteous man right there, is someone who knows their unrighteousness. The only ticket you need in to receive grace from me is the acknowledgement of your unworthiness. I'll take that prayer any day, Jesus says, over a long-winded, billowy prayer. Um, And if you look at the prayer that Cranmer edited to create this prayer and the confession for Holy Communion, it was long. And Cranmer cut it down. He was interested in just giving it uh, real plain, real simple. So uh, this is the confession. And that's another point, too. A lot of these prayers, because they're so loaded with scripture, are making a statement to us about what even our response to God at any moment is, which is God's gift. 
That means that God doesn't leave us alone to respond to him. He actually gives us what we should respond with. He gives us the confession to pray. And what a gift that God is that gracious, that he would um, love us that much, that he would give us himself in his word in this way. Moving on to this declaration of forgiveness. And I just want to point out that this is meant to be that moment where you're down in the emotional pit and you're rising up in the resurrection of Christ when you hear these words. I'd actually encourage you a good posture thing to do might not be to keep your eyes closed when the minister is pronouncing, when uh, the, the minister is pronouncing the declaration of forgiveness, but to look up. Why? Because there's sort of a biblical posture that's related to, say, uh, when Jesus was with Nicodemus. And he said, just as the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? So that just like the bronze snake, everyone would look on him and live. So there is something to the upward gaze in being able to hear the word of pardon to me with an upward gaze, as if I'm looking at Jesus on a cross. So... You know, whether your eyes are closed or not, look up with the eyes of faith and see Jesus on a cross there for you, declaring to you that he doesn't desire your death and that he's given power to another sinner to tell you that you've been forgiven. And this phrase, he pardons and absolves all those who truly repent and unfeignedly believe his holy gospel is the most important phrase here. But in case you're wondering, oh, is my heart the kind of heart that truly repents and unfeignedly believes? Does he only pardon those kinds of folks? It sort of doubles back. Wherefore, let us beseech him to grant us true repentance and his Holy Spirit. So there you have the theology of how does repentance really happen? Repentance, too, is a gift. It's not just my response. It's the Spirit-filled gift and response. That those things, by the power of the Spirit, may please him, which we do now, and that the rest of our life hereafter may be pure and holy. That's kind of the goal of this, is that we might be changed to go out. And then what do we do in worship? We stand. Don't miss that. That's a real important resurrection moment. It's the equivalent liturgical moment of Jesus saying, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And Lazarus rises up and goes, hey, I'm here. I'm alive. And so the next thing we, we say and we pray is, oh, Lord, open our lips because they've been shut in our sin. But now that Jesus has come, our lips are open and our mouths shall show forth thy praise. All of a sudden, the only thing left to do is the gifted response of praise. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning. So this squiggle here is taking us through and we're moving toward the heart of God. But we had to deal with that issue on the front end of our service, the confession of sin. Now we're into the place where we begin the scripture cycle. There's an invitatory oftentimes, although during COVID, you know, we've kind of shrunk this down so it's a little bit less obvious or maybe a little bit more clear because it's, it's just sort of hacked down. Um, we have a hymn that invites us to the preparation of the hearing of God's word. And then we hear a psalm and epistle. And then there's a canticle, which is any scripture song that's not a psalm. So any song in scripture you find not in the Psalms is what a canticle is, like the Song of Moses, the first canticle in Exodus 15, uh, and a bunch of other canticles. And so you have this kind of progression, and here's what I'd like to say about this section. 
is it kind of functions like a dialogue between God and us, where God's wooing us to his heart through the reading of the word and response. It's kind of like a massage, a spiritual massage in a way. God speaks, we respond. God speaks, we respond. That's, that's why there's a bit of up and down there when uh, we're doing the full liturgy and there's a reading of scripture and we sing, there's a reading of scripture and we sing kind of thing. That's the idea. So overlaying these things, we have the declaration of forgiveness and we sing in response to that. We have a psalm and epistle and we sing in response to that. Kind of like we did today with the canticle of Isaiah, surely it is God who saves me. We have a gospel reading and we sing in response because God in talking to us just like a good conversation with a friend does. It reestablishes the relationship and creates a kind of magnetism of movement toward rather than movement away. Say you haven't seen a friend in a while. Say like six days or something like that. You get together for coffee. Uh, you start having a conversation. By the end of the conversation, it's like you're, the intimacy of your relationship is reestablished. You know? That's why they say boyfriend, girlfriend, husband and wife go on dates because it's important to maintain that dialogical connection. So there's a real love component, Happy Valentine's Day, to morning prayer and what it's doing. In response to this Word of God stuff, at the end of this cycle, as we mentioned before, there is a kind of faith response. After this dialogue where God's Word has come at us, we respond, you know, Word of God comes down, in faith by saying these very faith-filled words, I believe or I faith. They're the same word in Greek and Hebrew. They're different words in English. But faith and believe is the same word. It's just that there's no verb for faith in English. I faith in God. Otherwise, it would be helpful to say that because we'd get how closely the uh, link is in Scripture between any word that says believe and any word that says faith. But there's that faith-filled response right here. Finally, as we progress, we're getting closest to the heart of God. So after the Word of God has done its work of being read, we have a series of prayers. And what I want you to observe is that there's a progression of the way that they work. Lord's Prayer and Suffrages, then the Collect of the Day and the Collects, and the Prayers of Intercession, and the Wrap-Up of the General Thanksgiving. There's a series of prayers where we're often on our knees praying. There's a progression there of, number one, God's words to our words, but there's also a progression of movement toward distance to intimacy, formality to informality. So take a look uh, with me at that. Think about the fact that we've talked about how the Word of God births faith. And even in this prayer sequence, you have totally verbatim scripture prayers moving into human composed prayers on the other side. Because what you have in the Lord's Prayer and the suffrages, old English word suffrages, it's, it's used because when we make supplications to God, the original way you'd often say it is suffer, O Lord, to do something like that. So when we're doing these arrow prayers of back and forth, O Lord, show thy mercy upon us and grant us thy salvation. Those are suffrages. That's what we're doing. What you need to know is that the suffrages are actually all scripture quotes, mostly from the Psalms. They're just a barrage of quotes of psalms and scripture meant to kind of give us the word of God to pray to him. And so the, this half here is God's word to us in prayer as we pray it. The second half becomes human composed prayers that we, and if you notice, if you kind of listen to the language carefully, it gets more intimate as we go. 
until we hit probably the most intimate part where it's kind of like John the Baptist at the Last Supper, where we're laying our head on, or not John the Baptist, but the Apostle John is laying his head on the bosom of Jesus. And we're talking to him about the most intimate things, which is why we pray for the whole state of Christ church in the world, but we also pray for our church stuff going on. Pray for the individual needs. That's why we hear names and names of people who have died and names of people who have been born and are baptized. Because this is like, now that I'm near the heart of God, I'm going to start asking for it's Santa's lap, but that sounds really crass, you know? We're there asking for stuff because our Father, our Heavenly Abba, has pulled us in and we're able to do that. So do you see kind of the progression of intimacy that we should, in some sense, feel as we move through this? And then there's this great general thanksgiving prayer that wraps it up. This is actually something that Cranmer didn't compose, but came later, which I thought was a wonderful addition in 1662. First thing to notice is that there's lots of thanksgiving going on in this prayer. We, we give you most humble and hearty thanks. Anytime you hear hearty, that's old English speak for heartfelt. It's not hearty like thick Campbell's soup or something like that. It means a heart-filled, heartfelt thanks. Uh, next thing I want you to notice about the general thanksgiving is um, we're blessing God for three things. I don't know why, but my heart always zeroes in on these three, uh, these three things that we're thanking God for. The first thing we're thanking God for is our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. All right? So we're thanking God that his providence is so meticulous that he was involved in the creation of the world and my creation. I want to I remember that God's that big, and even that... If I can't find anything to thank him for in this present moment, because life is so hard, I can still thank him for that. I can thank him for my preservation, because every breath drawn has been a direct order of God that it be so. You know, his, his providence is so meticulous that he's not like the deists say, where he's a divine watchmaker that kind of started the, the watch going and then let it continue. But God is intimately involved. And this is meant to sort of jog our memory. After I've had this intimate conversation with God in these prayers of intercession, I want to thank you that you're that involved in my life that every step is preserved. The reason I didn't get into an accident, the reason I got here today, the reason I have breath, the reason I have food on the table, it's because you have preserved me. It's not chance. It's not my own doing. You've done it. And all the blessings of this life. In case I missed anything, God, everything I have, you've given to me. But above all, which is wonderful because even if those feel like those other things have failed us, I don't feel very preserved right now. I don't feel like the blessings are very easily, easy to count or to see. I, I praise you above all for your inestimable love, which is hard to say, right? Inestimable. We always have a hard time saying it. A lot of modern prayer books understandably change that to something else. Um, inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God that won't let you go is something that's present for you in suffering and out of suffering, anywhere you are. That redemption is there and stays there. All, so that's the first thing we bless God for. The second thing we bless God for is for the means of grace. It's a very specific phrase here that was used a lot in the 16th century, particularly to describe the word and the sacraments and prayer. So these things that God gives us that sustain us in him, the Bible and the Jesus that the Bible gives us, the Jesus that the Lord's Supper and baptism give us, and prayer, conversation, and the Jesus that by the power of the Spirit appears to us in prayer. We're thanking God for those things, that God just didn't leave us in this world of creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but he actually gave us 
tangible vehicles that we can access if we go there that are conduits of his immediate grace to us. That is receiving the Lord's Supper. That is reading the Bible and praying to him. So we're thanking God for those things. And finally, we're blessing God for the hope of glory. What's that? Heaven. That I have that hope that can't be taken away, that on the other side of all this pain and misery and pandemic or whatever, I have that hope of eternal glory in God. So this is, I mean, this, we go by this prayer really fast every week, but this covers all the bases and is a wonderful and a summary prayer of everything. The final thing I want to point out to you is a little tidbit, if you're paying attention, right after the resurrection moment, when we stand up and we say, O oh Lord, open thou our lips. So kind of in that moment in the liturgy, our lips have been opened to praise God, but we've progressed with intimacy to the heart of God. And as a result, now we're getting ready for the kind of sent out piece, not only with our lips, but in our lives. And that's really something that the prophets harped on, is that we don't want our worship to just be lip service to God. That's something I talked about last week and quoted a few warnings about the way liturgical worship can downgrade into lip service to God, mere ritualism. But we want this to be not only with our lips, but in our lives. Romans 12, living sacrifices, by giving up ourselves to thy service and by walking before thee in holiness and righteousness. Sounds like the, the declaration of forgiveness kind of coming up again through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the Trinitarian end to that. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, so in a way, morning prayer is a Eucharistic service too. Because it's a service of giving thanks, which is what Eucharist means as well. So here we are on the back half. We've been drawn into the heart of God where we're asking things of him. And he's telling things to us. And then we're, we've approached the time where we're preparing to hear the word of God preached to us, where we've now come to his heart, we've asked for things, and he's here to say things to us and to declare kind of our, our daily bread for the week. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So God's feeding us with this sermon. This sermon is food for us to hear. And so as we go through that section, listening to a sermon is an act of worship. It's something active that we do. Um, we offer the worship of our ears. We turn them to hear, and we're listening for God's instruction, and we're listening for the word that God uses to dissect us and diagnose our heart, and to open up and show and display our need for Jesus, and then to give him to us, which I really felt that kind of progression happening throughout Doug's sermon today. The word of God was doing that work of opening me up and giving me Jesus, instructing me faithfully in uh, what that gospel is and who, who Jesus is and what he's done for me and giving me kind of a, a sense of my identity and where I'm headed this week. I now have a, a kind of greater sense of who we are and that's kind of what a good worship service should be, is helping you remember who you are, helping you remember your identity in Jesus, which is the most important thing in man. In this political and social day and age of identity politics and everyone trying to sort of own their own identity, we all come to worship for God to say, Jesus is your identity. Lay down those lesser things, whether it's your job 
or your sexuality or uh, your role in your work or your relationships or whatever, those get second fiddle to who you are in Jesus. Come to remember who you are because it's always the encroachment of those other identities that always jacks us up, honestly. It's the encroachment of those identities upon and over Jesus Christ that ends up destroying us because we were never meant to be built as people apart from life in Christ and God. So God's giving us back our identity. We come to remember who we are. Church is not an escape from the world. It's a centering so that we can be properly created beings. You know, it's a centering so that we know who we are in this world, right? It's not a sacred time and then we go back into secular time. It's all God's time. And when we gather together, we're there to get recalibrated that, oh yeah, it is all God's time. Because I've been prone to wander and think that I can sort of decalibrate this stuff to be segmented off. And that's not the way. It's so that we might own God not only with our lips, but our lives Monday through Saturday, right? The second part, offertory and doxology. We talked about this last week, but there's only sort of one thing to do in response to God's grace, which is to say, like Romans 12, here I offer myself to you, a living sacrifice. Um, so actually, that's the one place I think it is appropriate, and this is showing my theological cards a little bit, it is appropriate to call that thing up there an altar as opposed to a, a table, which was the word that the reformers liked to use to talk about the thing that communion elements were on. They preferred to call it a table. But they were okay with altar. In fact, some of them called it an altar table. You f I was just reminded of that when you found that in reformer Martin Bootser's liturgies. Why? It's not where Jesus is sacrificed, but it's where I am laid down as a living sacrifice. So one of the rituals that we have when COVID's not happening, which I think is helpful, is we're gathering up an offering that's coming from the people and it's being processed up to the altar. And what I want you to picture is yourself in that offering plate. Picture one of those acolytes or, or, or other ministers holding you and putting you down on there. That's you up there in response to God's grace saying, take all of me, not just token of my money, take all of me. That's kind of the idea in response to God's grace. And then finally, we have these closing prayers that wrap up our time and what we've done, a blessing that God, the only word that God has at the end of this work of his word is a simple word of blessing. There's no condemnation. There's just, you are blessed. I bless you. The peace of God be with you. Those kinds of things. We sing and then we go forth. So here, what's happening is that we've encountered the heart of God and we've been pushed out now. And God says, Go out and tell others what you've experienced here. You've witnessed Jesus. You've witnessed my love. So there's always in a worship service a missionary trajectory. That's why missions and worship can never be disassociated because they kind of work actually in symbiotic relationship. They're kind of like a circulatory system with missions as the veins and arteries and the heart as worship. Worship pumps the blood of the gospel and we kind of are gathered in by that gospel every week and are pumped back out in mission. And just as you can't disconnect veins from a heart and it still function as a circulatory system, you can't disconnect the mission of the church from the worship of the church, even though some people have tried. Some people have tried to make us all about only worshiping God on Sundays and kind of doing whatever you want Monday through Saturday. 
Others have said, mission is the only thing we do and gathered worship is unimportant. So why don't we close the shop of Sunday morning church and do a service project together instead? And it's both and. Both are required for this life to truly give life to the world, the life of Jesus Christ. So there you have it. And we have lots of time for questions. That was a, a, a blitz through the, the heart of morning prayer and journeying to heart, God's heart and back. I hope it's helpful. What questions do you have? I don't want to mess up your audio, but can I ask a question? Yeah, please do. Something that sticks out for me, and I'm not Episcopalian, uh, is uh, on the Declaration of Forgiveness. Yep. The uh, passage of saying it's through the minister. Yeah. And that just, uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but it seems like it, that's contrary to the priesthood of all beliefs. That's right. Yeah, it's a good point. Christ is our only mediator. That's right. If you're from especially like a, a non-Episcopalian tradition or Anglican tradition, hearing those words uh, where God has given power to his ministers to declare and pronounce to his people being penitent, the absolution or his remission of his sins, sounds a little bit itchy, doesn't it? Um, there, that was actually a debate among people who were in the Reformation about whether that kind of thing was appropriate for a minister to say, whether, whether what was going on was a true absolution uh, in the sense of like actually offering the forgiveness of sins or whether it was a declaration of God offering it. And at Advent, we lean toward the idea of it being God who offers it and us simply declaring it. What I want to say is take a look at John 20. There's this really cool passage uh, there after the resurrection that doesn't get enough airtime. It's actually Jesus' other great commission besides Matthew 28. And in John 20, the disciples are huddled up post-resurrection, super scared in a room, and Jesus appears to them. And it says he breathes on them his Holy Spirit, and he, uh, and he gives them this commission. He breathes on them his Holy Spirit. He says, my peace be with you, and I give you this charge Whoever you forgive is forgiven. And some people take that as, therefore, uh, they are the apostles and by apostolic succession. They pass down to bishops and ministers the power of the keys. I'm actually with you, with Luther, with Cranmer, that the power of the keys is actually given to every Christian. That those disciples were just paradigmatic of every one of us when God saves us. He gives us, as his ministers, the power to pronounce to his people being penitent, the absolution and remission of their sins. So actually, it's a model to all of us of what mission we have to tell other people, which is really cool because that means that you and I have authority from God to actually deliver God's words to someone else. You are forgiven. Those words are God's words to give, right? And when you, when you say them, you don't have to worry about its application. That's God's job to worry about it. Your job is to give that seed to someone else. So I hope if you're a good Christian, you're actually behaving like a priest should, which is anytime anyone's confessing something to you, that you need to look them dead in the eye and say, I want you to know, Christian, that in Jesus, that's forgiven. I want, you to, I want to remind you of that. And so, yeah, the liturgy can kind of give off the air that we're the only ones, the ordained clergy are, and some construals of Anglican polity also give off that. But that's not necessarily what was meant in the liturgy. But it was meant to be that bold, to say that Christians, as ministers, have that power. And when I declare that, it's as good as God declaring it. Which is crazy that we have that, but I think that's what's in John 20. 
is that when I declare forgiveness of sins out of the word of God to someone else, it's as good as God saying it, which is beautiful. That means we've got this whole mission just to tell that to people and then watch the way the word creates faith in others and wait patiently for the time where that connects up with the work of the Holy Spirit on the back end to come enliven them to Jesus. So great question. What else? Really just a comment. This is really, really good and helpful and gives a lot of clarity. I appreciate it. And it also reminds me how much I miss the full service. Yeah, there are things absent. I miss it too. It all printed out before us to read. Yeah. It's, um, so this is, this is just a taste of what You're right. I hope come back. Yeah, I hope so too. I hope we can re-lengthen these to get more scripture readings back in and to get some of that dialogue going on and slow down the progression a little bit because it, it does go a little fast, doesn't it? It even goes fast when it's the full liturgy. I mean, some of us read it fast or are nervous or whatever and you don't really get a chance to soak in it and there's just this barrage of old English from the 16th century and we're like, I don't even get what inestimable means. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I long for that day too when we can kind of slow down a little bit and be on the other side of breathing nasty diseases on one another in a building. Any other questions or comments? Well, next week we are going to take a look at Holy Communion and do much of the same kind of work. It'll be a little different diagrams. We'll, we'll have Valentine's hearts and stuff like that. And, uh, but uh, we will take a look at the communion liturgy, unpack a little bit about the structure of it here at the Advent, why we do the things the way we do, and how it's connected to the theology of the gospel and stuff like that. So. Um, God bless you, and we will see you next week. Bye. You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.